Have you ever noticed how they, how they put names on the side of cars? And the names have such fantastic reverberations. <laughs> Can you imagine a guy driving in a car that's got bad tappets? It's got two busted valve springs. And the kingpins are loose up on the front. And on the side of it, it says, Galaxy 2. <laughs> and it's going... Makes you wonder how the universe is getting along, you know? Oh, yeah, they have cars on the side of them that says things like, Mustang. You know what a Mustang is? That's a rangy wild horse. And here's this little skinny guy with pimples. And he's sitting there driving his Mustang with three years of time payments trailing out behind it. He's driving along. Mustang, and that horse is running. <laughs> yeah, you wonder, wouldn't it be great if they really named cars for what the truth? Gutless, too. <laughs> Can you see one car called the Timid? Timid, spelled in French, with a little umlaut over the eye, with a little bent arrow running through it, you know? Oh, man. And how about, have you seen all, have you noticed that all these cars now are being advertised for women? They never show men now in car ads. They always show this tall, skinny chick, you know, and she's got high leather boots and a crash helmet. What, you know, you wonder what she's going to do with this little car, you know. She's got a crash helmet. Have you seen that chick? She's got a big pair of goggles, and she's real flat. You wonder how they got her taped up, you know. What, you know there she is. She's standing there, and she's got a bull whip. And underneath it, it says, for the restless ones. <laughs> oh, and you can imagine having a date with that one. <laughs> Boy, that's something women don't know about. Have you ever gone out with a chick and thought, and, and 30 seconds after you picked her up and you're in the car, you felt you have stepped into an electric fan? <laughs> you know that old expression about what's hitting the fan? It turns out it's you, you know, boom! <laughs> Well, <laughs> oh yeah, those guys are out there. They're driving in the darkness. And they're heading out along those turnpikes right now. And some of them got their radios on. And we're coming out of it. There's a guy right now, I will warranty, guarantee, he is approaching Interchange 12 on the Jersey Turnpike. Right now, aren't you, man? <laughs> And sitting next to him is this chick. And he's trying to pretend it's beautiful in Jersey. They're driving through all those gas tanks, you know. <laughs> you know where Interchange 12 is, you know. And they've just come through Secaucus. And he's driving along in his car, see, and he's trying to create that ambience that is necessary for romance. <laughs> And he's looking out of the window and he says, gee, ain't it a beautiful night, Clara? And another truck, great big truck goes by, a diesel, you know, squirting the stuff all over you. Well, it's the American night, friends. They're out there right now looking for beauty in their 47 Mercuries, in their Pontiac. Can you imagine? You know, nothing is sadder than a poor little man who spends two and a half hours a week at his analyst and also $50. A poor little man with a little straw hat sitting in a car and it has on the side of it, Tempest. How true that car is. Yes, and out there in the darkness right now, they're whistling, boring through the American night, looking for truth, beauty, excitement, and there's always somebody who has to stop at the next Howard Johnson because they didn't stop at the last one. You know, ah, that whining sound. Have you ever gone out? How, how many girls have used in this room the whine? Oh, the men know that whining sound. That sound, oh, I don't want to. Or, gee whiz. 
And the guy's sitting there driving. He's trying to create a beautiful world for this chick. He says, we're going to the drive-in tonight. And she says, the drive-in? He says, yeah, they got a double feature. She says, I've seen him. Oh, that sick feeling. He says, well, where do you want to go? We can go to Hackensack. <laughs> Come on, honey, we can go. We can walk around. We can walk right down by the park. She says, oh, yeah, all right. You know that whine of the, of the discontented American girl who has grown up reading too many Vogue magazines? You know where all the women live in this beautiful stainless steel world? Have you seen Vogue lately? All those beautiful stainless steel ladies. They all look like they come off of hubcaps. And they're standing there, and underneath it it says, The modern, restless American woman is on the go. And here she is sitting right now at this minute in a 47 Mercury with Harold. And right at this minute, he is reaching for the radio knob to change it. And she is saying, wait, I want to hear what he's got to say. It's too late. Because each one of us has a vague suspicion in his soul that somewhere along the line, he missed the boat. Isn't it terrible to realize that all of us were born the same? Little mewling, puking babes. That's Shakespeare. <laughs> that makes it okay, so don't write me don't write me letters talking about my bad taste. That's That's uh, Shakespeare, it's all right. Mewling, puking babes, little wet things. All of us, every last one of us in the world, Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor, the whole crowd. There we are, all these millions of little babies, all born at the same time. And then we begin to split, very quickly. One group goes off in the one direction, and they head immediately towards Sardis. And they got black glasses on. And they're on the Arlene Francis show. They're being interviewed. They're the they. Wouldn't you love to be the they? You know, the they that keeps all the good stuff off television? The they who runs the World's Fair? <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Is it being run anyway? Is the fair still out there? Oh, listen, I'll tell you. I, I, I'm going to tell you a funny line, I, I, if I can digress here for a second. The other day... And I'm not one of these guys that jumps on the fair, you know, just because it's down. <laughs> no, no. I am, I am in this restaurant. Boy, I'll tell you, there is nothing like the sight, seriously, of the World's Fair from that restaurant they've got out there, that one called Top of the Fair. Well, two days ago, I am, by some mistake of an addressograph machine... I have been invited to a VIP luncheon. I am a spy, see. Yeah, you know, so once in a while you get... Have you ever gotten something that you shouldn't get? And you've actually taken advantage of it? Well, I'm there with the thing on me, see. It's this important man, you know. And they have a bus, and they take us out there. Oh, wow, what a life, you know. And the music is playing. And the next thing I know, I am up at the top of the fair restaurant. Now, they've got glass that runs all the way around this restaurant. And you can look down, and you're, you're about, oh, it must be 200 feet above the, rest, above, the, above the ground. You see the whole fair spread out. And you're drinking champagne. You're yelling and hollering. All the VIPs have gathered. And by the way, this restaurant is open only to people who are members of this very esoteric club. I never found out what the club was, you know. But they're all sitting around, and they've got white shirts that are real stiff, and, you know, they pop when they move. And I, oh, yeah, and they've got little black ties, and you can see them in those round tables for miles around. It's a fantastically big restaurant, and our little party. And there's a man sitting next to me. I, may, I don't know whether I should do, use his name or not. He's one of the very few people in the 20th century whose name is a common noun now. He is so famous that he is in all the dictionaries in small print. 
Yeah. What? No, no. Is uh, Moses? Forget it. <laughs> oh. We are surrounded by lead mines everywhere. You are. No, 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 no. This is a man who, whose achievements are so world-renowned that his name itself has become a, a word. It's just like if your name is, is uh, Apple Rot, and you invent this fantastic thing that becomes so universal, they just say, oh boy, he pulled an Apple Rot that time. And, and, and they, they, they begin to believe there's not even such a man as Apple Rot. Well, sitting next to me is this man. What, you want to know his name? All right, Rube Goldberg. Yeah. You've heard of, you know, they say a Rube Goldberg invention, a real Rube Goldberg. Well, here is the real Rube Goldberg, one of the funniest men I've ever known in my life. He's about 80 now. And he looks like, have you ever seen pictures of Al Smith? He looks exactly like Al Smith. He talks a little like Ned Sparks. And old Rube is sitting next to me, and he's eating, he's eating the baked Alaska. And he's looking at it, and he's 80 years old, and his name is in the dictionary. Remember that. And there's old Shep sitting, Shep sitting next to a radio, a true, now that's true fame. That's true fame, you know. That's far more famous than to have had a hit play. You know, there's thousands of actors who had hit plays that are living in little hotels on 49th Street. You wouldn't even know their name. This is a man whose name is synonymous with a whole way of looking at it, of the Rube Goldberg. I, I, in fact, I read of one of the big rockets on its way to Mars was described as a Rube Goldberg contraption. You know, there's old Rube sitting next to me. You know? And he's sitting there, and he's looking out of the window at the fair. Now, you got the picture? It's twilight, and all the lights are on. It's like a fairy tale looks beautiful except there isn't a single solitary soul down there it's all lit up and Rube is looking down there never says a word for about 10 minutes just looks he looks over there at the General Motors building and over there is the Ford building and there's that big Ferris wheel in the New York State building and the lights are glowing Rube just stands there and I get up and I stand next to him. We're both looking. And then all of a sudden, Rube says it. You know, uh, you know what I think they ought to do? I said, what, Rube? Mr. Goldberg? <laughs> so you know what they ought to do? I think they ought to open up the gates and let the people in. Because <laughs> I think it's been private long enough. If we had it to ourselves now for almost two years, it's getting kind of worn out. Well, I just let them in. And I turned around. I could see all those people with those stiff white shirts eating the baked Alaska. And down there was their fare in the lights. Well, these are the great moments, you know, of your life. They happen occasionally. And I'm going to tell you about that great moment. Oh, do you want to hear about another time I got the wrong thing? All right, let me, this will only take a second, and we'll get out of the Rosella Pullen. You see, I'm chickening out. That Rosella Pullen story was a real traumatic event. Oh, I don't, I, I'm approaching it very tenderly, you know, because she's still sitting on the edge of this platform with her saxophone and her pom-pom and all those other little things she had. Well, I'm a kid, you know, we've all, we've, uh, how many of you as a kid ever got a job in a fantastic organization, like for a, you were a male boy or you were an office boy, and you worked in an organization that was so big, it was like you were working for God himself. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Well, when I'm a kid, well, I'll tell you a thing, I'm a kid, and one summer, I'm, a, I'm maybe 15, 16, and I got a fantastically lucky break. In the town that I festered in, that I grew up in, there was only one place you went to work if you were lucky. And that was what was called just simply with one phrase, the mill. It was a mill town. 
And what was the mill? The mill was this gigantic steel mill that surrounded the whole horizon. It stretched from, oh, it stretched from Michigan all the way to Ohio. And it was the mill. And we're walking around in front of it all the time. You know, kids were playing ball and stuff. And there are those blast furnaces. And there are those open hearts. And it was, it was, it was fantastically alluring. That was sort of the grown-up world. It was the world of money. It was the world of acceptance. It was the world of making it. And one summer, I got a job as a mail boy in the mill. And it's, you know, it's like a kid in New York. See, New York kids are not mill-oriented, so they don't appreciate this. New York kids are showbiz-oriented. Oh, yeah, most New York kids have an idea at the age of nine they want to write a play. Oh, they do. All kinds of little pimply-faced kids got an idea they're going to write a play, you know. Oh, yeah, they're, Brooklyn is just, oh, it's just sick with them, you know. All over the Bronx, there's all kinds of little skinny chicks that are practicing to be Barbara Streisand, you know. Little realizing they really are Barbara Streisand, you know. Boy. And, and, and yeah, they think in terms of, of going into the theater. That's why most writers of plays and most actors and actresses come from New York. We thought our theater was the mill. And now here I was. I'm this kid. And I'm earning 17 bucks a week. Now, within every big social structure, all those pyramids, there are the guys at the top, and it just goes down. And the higher you go, the more inaccessible is that man. So the little... The little guy in the chorus, or the little, the little chick, you know, that's in the crowd in a Broadway play, hardly ever even gets a chance to even stand on the same board that Richard Burton walks on. No, are you aware of that? You know, they stand back there and they look at that star. Well, in the steel mill, the stars of the mill were the superintendents. Now, wait, don't laugh. These men, each one of them, had maybe 15,000 men under them. They were like generals, and they ran a whole division of the mill, like the whole tin mill, or the whole open heart, or the whole blast furnace. And every Friday, I would get my paycheck. Came in a little envelope, and I was delivering mail all day long, you know, running around, and I would go past these offices of these unbelievable men, the stars, the generals, the superintendents. And it was a guy named Tompkins who lived... Seriously, he lived like in an airy. He ran the entire metallurgical department of the steel mill. This guy was bigger than David Merrick. He was bigger than Robert Moses. He had his own world fair that ran all the time, year in and year out, blew up fireworks and turned out tanks and everything. Oh, he was in charge of the whole scene. And every week I'm running past this guy's office. Never saw him. I'd see his limousine once in a while with the chauffeur there. Well, one day, old Shep gets his paycheck, and I've got it in my pocket. All Friday morning, I'm delivering mail. I don't even look at it. You know, it came out of a machine. You know, that kind of check that's got little holes all over it? And it's always the same. It's a 1748, you know, and the little red numbers and stuff, you know. Always said the same thing, see. So I had it in my pocket, and I'm running. I'm running back and forth, working all day long. It is now 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm going to quit in about an hour. And I take out my paycheck. i got eight minutes to rest. I rip it open. I, I can't believe it. I have got a paycheck for $1,790. And it is made out for a two-week period to Mr. Tompkins. I got Mr. Tompkins' paycheck. Can you imagine a little kid in the chorus in the back row getting Richard Burton's pay? <laughs> well, somehow you don't want to know how much they really make, you know? Gee, it was a terrible moment I got this thing. I stood there for a second, I remember it, and I stuck it back in my pocket. And all of a sudden, I realized that Mr. Tompkins made millions of dollars. I'd never even associated him with dollar bills or even getting paid. 
You don't think it took... Can you imagine Mr. Moses waiting in line to get his paycheck? You know, He's waiting with all the rest of the guys. You don't think of those guys getting paid. Where does Adley Stevenson get paid? Where does he cash his check? I mean, when President Johnson gets his paycheck, does he complain? Does he pick up the phone? Say, what about these deductions here? You know? You know, you know think of big guys like that getting paid, and I got Mr. Tompkins' paycheck, and I feel unclean. So, and I go back to the mail room, and I'm standing there for a couple of seconds. I don't know what to say, and I finally go up to Mr. Moss, who was my boss, and I said, Mr. Moss, uh, they made a mistake on my check. And Moss says, oh, come on now. I said, we got the, uh, you uh, punch in late, they, they take it off. I said, no, they made a mistake. I've got Mr. Tompkins' check. And Mr. Moss was a grown-up man. Now listen to this, man. <laughs> Mr. Moss had worked in the steel mill for 30 years. He has worked up to the boss of the mail boys. <laughs> After 30 years. And he said, what? I said, I've got Mr. Tompkins' paycheck. He said, let me see it. <laughs> he takes the check. And there the two of us stood. Me, the male boy, and my boss, looking at Mr. Tompkins' paycheck. And out there somewhere, Mr. Tompkins was sitting at an ivory desk, wondering why his check was being held up. Well, I can only say to you, friends, that ignorance is a wonderful virtue. The least you know about the way it is, the better off you are. Oh, yeah. In fact, from the day that I knew that Mr. Tompkins made exactly that much money, I felt funny every time I went past his office. Like I knew some unholy secret about him. How many of you remember the time, the first time you found out how much your father made? <laughs> and there was a big yelling argument in the kitchen about it. Oh, isn't that an awful feeling you don't want to know about your dad? I'll never forget the time my dad came home on a quiet Wednesday afternoon at 3.30. He usually got home at 6. And you could hear the car coming up the driveway. And I had just got home from school. And he came up the back steps and into the kitchen. My mother came out of the bedroom and said, What happened? And my old man said, Tell the kids to go out and play. It was the day my old man got fired. Woo! These are things you don't want to know about life. Well, all right, I'll tell you about Rosella. <laughs> I'm a clunk, you know, a club. A simple tool. And I was involved, you know, I'm just like all other klutzes. I'm involved in something that's totally asocial. Now, you will find this is part of clutchdom. He gets involved in bowling. Or he gets involved in sitting in the diner and hitting guys. This is a klutz trick. By the way, men, how many of you know that awful feeling of driving along US 46 or Jersey 9 or one of those awful places out there, you know, and you're, you're driving along and this chick keeps saying, gee, I'm hungry. Let's look for a place to eat. And you say, oh, yeah, yeah, here's a place. And there's one of those big, you know, these big neon signs that say, eat. <laughs> you know, I never saw that in any other foreign country. They're not that basic, you know. <laughs> I never once saw, you know, a big sign that says gluttony. You know. Oh, yeah, we're very, we don't realize how basic we are. I'm serious, you know, I, I looked all over Hamburg. In fact, I looked all over three German cities looking for a washroom once. <laughs> they hide them down underneath little things with little things over the top. Only in America do you drive along US-1 at 2 o'clock in the morning and a giant neon sign, red, white, and blue, says, Restroom! <laughs> <laughs> That's the truth, you know. We're the only one in the world that does this. <laughs> so I, I, funny enough, all men know this feeling of driving along 
and the chick says, gee, I'm hungry. And you say, all right, all right. And you whip into this place, and it's made out of stainless steel. You know those dry, you know those, 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 what they call diners. They're not diners. They're just little stainless steel space tablets, you know, sitting there. And they, they're all lit up, and there's nothing. There's no civilization. Junkyards, high-tension wires. There's oil drums and swamps, old wrecked cars for miles. And you're driving into the drive-in. You're driving into the diner to meet your moment of truth. Only you don't know it. You drive in, and there's a whole bunch of cars parked out in front, you know, all at an angle, and you begin to suspect immediately because they've got all those decals all over the side, you know, with the devils and the flames and <laughs> the zebra-covered steering wheels, you know, the whole bit. You don't think anything about it because you're swinging, you're talking to the chick, and you're having a good time, and you're, you're, you're trying to, you know, you're trying to impress her and everything. You drive in, you get out of the car, and you say, come on, let's go. You walk in, you're all dressed up in your suit. You open the door, they, they slide, you know, they slide open like that. And immediately, the instant that neon, that white glow light smacks you in the eye, you know you're in trouble. Four guys, you know the kind of guys with no necks? <laughs> and they're all about 12 years old, you know, mentally. And they got these little marbles for eyes. And they've got, they've got, they've got this, they're always, where they get these satin jackets, I don't know. They're all sitting there, see, with the chino pants. And the instant you open that door, they all turn around and look. And you walk in with your chick, you know, you say, let's sit at a booth, Martha. And you sit down, and all four of them just sit and watch. They're waiting for you to just so much as twitch. And you sit there, trying to pretend nothing's happening. And you see the chick opposite you. You know, you always, to try to get out of it, you sit with your back to him. And the chick is looking right at him. And you see all of a sudden her eyes are not on you. And you keep saying, well, and so I said to Fred, uh, uh, and she keeps looking over, and you, you, you got to look. And you look back, and here is this guy making obscene gestures at her. He's looking at her, and, and, and one, the look says one thing. What are you doing with that idiotic, skinny, little, nothing sissy? That sissy you're with. And she's looking kind of embarrassed. And being a chick, you know, she can go in any direction. And you suspect it. <laughs> and she says, uh, maybe we'd better go. You say, no. That's the only thing you can say. And one of the klutzes puts a dime in a jukebox and this rock and roll comes out. And then that tension begins to build. One of them gets up and walks past and knocks the fork off the table. You he gets down to the other end. He says, you got any pie, Manny? He's down looking at the pie. You know, he's so much at home in this diner, he just opens the things up, takes the pie out, and walks out. <laughs> you are surrounded by enemies. Even the guy behind the counter is one of them. <laughs> this is a male thing, that terrible scare. Well, all right. This is another male thing. And before we go any further, this is what station? <laughs> I'm at FM New York. I'm Billy Graham. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm a kid, you know, and I'm a klutz, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be one of the diner crowd and not making it. And yet, I'm not in with the band. I'm not within any of these things. And I'm standing out there with my friend who was a real diner type. He grew up to be a fist fighter, a spitter. The kind of guy, you know, that had two bowling balls with one hand like that. He bowled them at the same time. When this guy went bowling, he didn't aim at the pins. He aimed at the pin ball. And I'm sort of hanging out. How many, how many of us know that little secret, that little secret joy of being accepted and genuine? You know, and he, he accepts us, you know, and he says, well, we ought to go show him, huh, Manny? You know, there you are. Yeah, let's go. Because most of us are coding. Let's face it. And my...
So Bolas and I are standing back there eating our salami sandwiches, making snotty remarks about the band. That bunch of sissies. And the band is out there marching around the football field in practice. And they're playing Semper Fidelis. I remember it well. It was a beautiful May afternoon. I was about to see one of the true inner sights of my own existence. Little did I realize it at the time. I was working my way through a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I was heading towards the Twinkie. <laughs> Have you ever gone out and got yourself all Twinkied up? <laughs> I mean, there are some things in life you just don't get enough of, you know, like, like shrimp. I can think of about a half a dozen things that there just aren't enough of. And I remember at the time that I spent $5 on Twinkies. As a kid, I was sick all through the month of June. Well, there I'm sitting there, see, <laughs> eating my sandwich, and Bolus is next to me, and the band is marching. And out in front of the band is the drum major. Now, we had a genuine male drum major, you know, the kind that was nine feet tall with a big hat, you know, and the batons going, and he's got a sort of maniacal quality about him. And behind him was this little covey of girls, pom-pom girls carrying these little things, you know, with the fuzzy things on the top, and the band is going, bum, 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 and they're moving along. It was the first moment that I saw Rosella Pullen, and she was in the band. And, and Bolas is saying, Hey, a bunch of nuts! Uh! <laughs> oh, uh, go ahead, let's hear you play Ham and High Victory. Ha, <laughs> Ham and High, bunch of... Uh. And I'm hollering, Yeah, a bunch of nuts, you know. <laughs> And here is this fantastic girl, you know. All Americans are vaguely in love with drum majorettes and pom-pom girls. And that whole scene, you know, have you ever just watched sometimes parades on television? You just look. And nobody else seems to be excited. Women, look, they don't know what you see in this. I don't know what it is. It's a very secret psychological thing. And she's got these little white shorts. And she's wearing the top half of a uniform. It's a kind of a dark purple thing with little epaulettes and stuff, you know. And she's got this pom-pom going, and I'm looking. And this is the same chick that had gone to school with me from the time I was three. She has now developed into this radiator ornament. <laughs> yeah, you know, she's not just little old fat Rosella anymore. And it wasn't just the fact that, she, you know, I don't know, it wasn't the fact that she had developed personally. It was the uniform and everything, the symbolism of it all. And the band is playing, and she becomes like a star, Rosella. And I'm watching her. And Bolas is standing next to me, and he's spitting. You know, the clunk never appreciates the finer things in life. And he says, let's go down and bust some windows. Come on. Let's go bust some windows in the gym. Come on. Come on, let's go get Schwartz and we'll kick guys. Come on. You know. <laughs> you know, I'm sort of trailing after him and the band is marching off down into the distance and they're playing Semper Fidelis and the sun is shining on those tubas and the sun is shining on those trombones and the music is bouncing off the schoolhouse and I am looking for somebody to kick. And we did. For a half an hour, we busted windows, and we kicked little kids in fourth grade. But the song was gone from it. Even the klutz someday doubts his klutzdom. Yes, I was doing it without that esprit de joie. I'm walking along, I see. That night, I go home for the first time the long way around. You know, kids all have a, a, a particular path that they go home by from school and this night I go past Rosella's house I knew where she lived she lived two blocks over on Arizona Street I just passed the house 
I'm in, you know, that foreign territory where you're out of your own home grounds, you know, and I'm walking along. And for the first time in months, I am not with Schwartz, Flick, Bruner, and Bowler. We used to spend our entire evening coming home throwing rocks at streetlights. Yeah, we'd go from streetlight to streetlight, you know. Oh, yeah. I'll never forget the time. Oh, you know, this, this little moment of life's true, genuine victory. I am walking with Schwartz and Flick and Bolas, and I am, you know, I've been, uh, hardly anybody ever hits with these high street lights that hung way up. It was just sort of a routine, you know, you just throw, you just keep right on going, you just say, watch this, you know, you just throw. Old Chef picks up a rock one night, and the four of us are walking down the street, and I said, watch this, you know, just routine, watch this, you know, I let it go. All four of us transfixed. You never saw, you never saw a 700-foot slider like that. That was curving right in. Boom! The night shepherd, it became, it became legendary. The night shepherd, <laughs> the night shepherd busted the light. It was one of those legendary things. It came down with a crash. Sirens are going for miles around. And I was again, you know, the big guy in the neighborhood. Oh, it was one of those little moments I came back. I, 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 oh, one night I won a Monopoly game, too. <laughs> it was a big night. <laughs> well, all right, now. It began to gnaw away at me. I don't think... I, I often wonder, you know, when I see chicks, I wonder whether women ever get the hang-up on men that men get on women. I somehow doubt it. They fall in love, sure, but there's a certain kind of maniacal intensity that hits a 15-year-old kid. It's like a giant pimple. It just won't go, and it's got a bust, you know? This is insane. It makes you vibrate. Oh, yeah, and you, 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 you see her in the hall. You know that thing? You know what I'm talking about, men. And there's a whole bunch of minions of kids. You see her. Ooh, you know? You walk on, you're trying to pretend like nothing's happening. It's one girl. It's the nuttiness. I think it is this thing that makes Beethoven write the symphony. Yeah. I think Herman Melville. It's an example. You can't imagine a chick writing Moby Dick. I mean, it just isn't like that, you know? It's not going to work like that. It is this hang-up. And so I'm about 15, and Rosella Pullen became the number one hang-up in my life. And she was in the band. And I came from a family where they laughed at music. Nobody played anything in my family. My dad, you know, was good with the thumb once in a while. He would make his fingers go. He had a great thump, you know, blah, 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 like that, when the music would play. My kid brother could hit bottles with forks. That was the kind of family. And Rosella Pullen was a national saxophone champion. Do you know what this does to a boy? She was a national champ. You know how they have these high school band contests? And I remember the day that Rosella Pullen is up on the high school auditorium stage. Mr. Spone, our high school principal, he was a combination of... Uh, well, Lewis Stone, he was, there was a little bit of uh, C. Aubrey Smith in him, and just a little touch of Mussolini. <laughs> Boy, he was, a, he was a fantastic principal, you know, and everybody was scared of Mr. Spone. I'll never forget the time, the entire school. I, I started a riot. I, I think I was the first in all America to instigate a teenage demonstration, and I did it innocently. It came on a quiet noonday luncheon, and I'm standing across the street from the school, and the high school basketball team had just won a big tournament game. And there were about ten of us standing there, and somebody says, you know, they ought to give us the afternoon off for that. And I says, yeah, well, that's because Mr. Spoon is a fink. <laughs> he wouldn't give us that. Mr. Spoon is a fink. And suddenly, eight other kids started out, and Mr. Spoon is a fink. It spread like the fungus. All of a sudden, the whole street is filled with 18,000 kids hollering, Mr. Spoon is a fake! 
Mr. Spoon is a fink. And there I am. And they begin to throw at the school. Have you ever started a demonstration and all of a sudden you're scared out of your skull? <laughs> Woo! You know, it's, it's happening. And the kids are throwing stuff. And there must have been 2,000 of us. And I'm way in the back. <laughs> well, you know, you know. <laughs> And, and all of a sudden, after about ten minutes of this yelling and hollering, the kids were hollering, Spoon is a fink! Spoon is a fink! The door slams open. And there was Mr. Spoon. Spoon walks out on the stone steps of Hammond High School and looks down over 2,000 cabbage heads. <laughs> And he's surrounded by tomatoes and tin cans. And there were about a half a dozen arms still there. <laughs> Spoon just looks down at that crowd. And he said, get in here. And he turned and walked into the school. And everybody just quietly filed in. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, do you really want to see City Hall burnt down, gang? Yeah? Yeah. yeah. All right, let's go. Yeah. yeah, look at they sit. Not one move. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know the kind of demonstrator you are. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, this band thing, you know, it, it began to go on and on and on. Week after week went by. And the climax came the day that Mr. Spone is sitting up on the platform. You remember when you were a kid and you used to go to high school auditoriums? This is a very special American thing. It'd be very hard to describe this to a foreign person. The high school auditorium session. They always call it auditorium session. And down in front, before the stage, is the high school band or the high school orchestra. And they're always playing something like uh, the NC4 March. And all the kids are coming in, you know, it's 10.30 in the morning. <laughs> and the only thing good about the auditorium session, see, Miss Fife, your advisor in the morning, said there'll be an auditorium session for Section A at 10.30. Section B will meet at 10.45. And uh, we will not have the second class. Oh, boy, wow, you know, you're out of English today, see. That's all it means to you. And there's a succession of guys standing up on the stage, you know, doing this stuff, and you're sitting back there, and then you have to sing the high school song. You know that in four years I never learned the words. How many of you... All right, start booing. How many of you know the Star Spangled Banner? Do you know that out at Met Stadium they had to put it up on the scoreboard when they sang? And the people keep missing the words. When it goes off, they stop singing, you know? So, oh yeah, I used to go like this, that the band would be playing, we'd always finish every auditorium session with the high school song. And the cheerleaders would jump up on the stage, and they'd say, all right now, all together, let's sing the Hammond Victory Song, let's go! And the band would go, da 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 boom! Then the song would start. da 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 And the whole crowd is singing. And I'm singing, Hammond, victory, purple, purple, victory for the hue. Never made sense. <laughs> what is a purple victory for the hue? <laughs> to this day, I sing it that way. Hammond, we'll fight for you. Purple victory is our hue. Hammond. And I say, da, 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 victory, 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 hue. Oh, Hammond, we'll fight for you. Da, da, da. And then I turn and go out. You know? <laughs> Well, <laughs> well, that's the auditorium session, see, and there's always the smell of the curtains and all that jazz, and the smell of the lunchroom downstairs somewhere, you can smell the spaghetti, you know, sneaking in that, that they always have in the cafeteria, and you know that very special smell of the swimming pool? It, it, it somehow sneaks into the auditorium in hot days, and you can smell the gym. <laughs> Well, what are you laughing at? What kind of a gym did you have? I, sure. I smelt like tile and stuff. 
Oh yeah, they had a they had a they had a they had a name for that smell, which I can't even do at this day without blushing, you know. Oh yeah, you want to? I'll tell it to you when I get off the air. You got to be over twenty-one, though. And so, up on the stage on this day. Now I only I only knew Rosella Pullen as a as a faint figure in the distance, behind the drum major, and I took to going to things like basketball games. I took to going to track meets so I could see Rosella in her little short white pants with that big purple pom-pom. That's the only side I knew of Rosella. Well, I am standing back with my Miss Fife class, you know, the whole bunch of us are standing. We sit down. Mr. Spone is sitting up on the platform. There is a pause. And Mr. Spone said, Children, you know that, you know the principal talk, see. He said, children, we have a very special treat today. We are going to award the national awards to members of our high school who have won national fame. And the first one who will give us a performance is a girl that we all know. I don't know who it is. A girl, we, I'm still half asleep sitting there. A girl we all know who has just won the National Saxophone Playing Championship at the New York World's Fair. I'm sitting there, waiting. And up steps Rosella Pullen in a white evening gown in the middle of the morning in Hammond, Indiana. <laughs> yeah, you know how chicks are. With the biggest golden saxophone you ever saw in your life. You know, the kind that kids in bands play, you know, gigantic saxophone. And Rosella steps to the microphone and said, I'm going to play the number with which I won the National Band Championship, Class A, tenor saxophone division. By the way, she never turned out to be Charlie Parker. And she says, I am going to play Carnival of Venice. And she takes the saxophone and starts to play. She filled the auditorium with Carnival of Venice. And I am falling nuttily, madly, insanely in love with music. I got to learn how to play a horn so that I can get to be somehow close to Rosella. And Rosella finishes and the crowd cheers and they give her a little medal. And I walk out and that afternoon, I went up to Miss Fife, my advisor. I didn't tell Bolas what I was doing. <laughs> he was down there kicking kids. <laughs> I told him I had to go in. I got something special I got to see Miss Fife about. I didn't tell Schwartz what I was doing. He was busting windows. <laughs> Flick was letting the air out of teachers' tires. And I went into Miss Fife, and I said, Miss Fife, how do you get in the band? I want to get in the band. And she said, Oh, oh well. Go down and see Mr. Dirks. Mr. Dirks. Up to that point, Mr. Dirks had been this legendary man, the band director. You know, he doesn't have anything to do with the rest of the kids. He's got a big uniform and a baton. He was kind of like remote. She said, go down and see Mr. Dirks. I said, Mr. Dirks, where is he? She said, well, he's down by the auditorium, down the band room. Okay. I go down, little realizing I was walking a road that would never have a turning. Yeah. I walked down through that, you know, that corridor where the monitors are sitting. The kids are not in yet. Lunch is not back. And I walked down through there all by myself, and I'm scared. I don't know what the, you know, I don't play anything. I come from a non-musical family. And I go into the band room, and there sitting at his desk, grading papers, was Mr. Dirks. Mr. Dirks looked like Oliver Hardy. 
He was a wonderful man, big, round face. And he's sitting there. He'd never seen me ever in his life. You know, I'm just a kid. And I show up. Mr. Dirks said, yes. Uh, I'd like to be in the band. Oh, very good. Very good. What do you play? Well, you know, you can't tell me you play kick the can. <laughs> I'm a great shortstop, you know. I said, well, I, I, don't, I don't play anything, Mr. Dirks. And he said, oh, you'd like to learn to play an instrument. I said, yeah, I guess so. And I'm thinking of Rosella Pullman. I'm thinking of how Rosella's going to love me when I get my medal. And how she and I are going to play beautiful duets. I will play my instrument, whatever it is, you know. And she will play her golden saxophone. And we will play Caprice Benoit forever. And Mr. Derek says, well, you know, it's pretty late in the year. He said, all the instruments have been assigned. I said, you mean I can't get it? He says, yeah, well, we do have one. Come on. He said, let's see how big you are. Stand up straight. Stand there, you know. <laughs> well, you know, I was a pretty tough kid. I played football on it, you know. And I, said, I stand there like this. He said, I think you can do it. Let me see your shoulder. Yeah, come on. I said, what kind of an instrument is this? Thirty seconds later, I felt that first magical pressure. The first moment that a B-flat four valve sousaphone crushed me to earth. <laughs> I stood there holding that big horn, that fantastic bell above me, and he said, how does it feel? Well, pretty good. He said, well, spin around now. Let's see. I spin around. He said, you do pretty good. He says, now for your first lesson, put your mouth up to that mouthpiece. And there it was. This was my avenue into culture. I was about to become a creative artist. I put my mouth into that mouthpiece. And you know those big German silver B-flat sousaphone mouthpieces covered a whole mug. <laughs> you know, I just went right into it. And I breathed that first fantastic breath of sousaphone halitosis. <laughs> This sousaphone had been played by 18 generations of high school kids with bad teeth. You know, when you play a sousaphone, there's a great big little puddle of spit and saliva, and it, it grows down in there. It doesn't all come out, you know. And there's a little swamp inside of every sousaphone with little animals growing, you know. Oh, it's a wonderful smell. And I breathed it in, you know, my eyes bulged out. <laughs> Mr. Dirk says, don't breathe it in. <laughs> he says, you breathe out into it. You know, many a kid had to be revived, you know. <laughs> and so I put my mouth into that big old bell, and he says, all right, now, he says, go. Two. Two. I got my mug in there, and I go, nothing, <laughs> nothing. Dirk says, now go once more with a slight vibrato, and I go, and this beautiful B-flat tone filled the room, and I was in love. And ever since that time now, every time I look at Leonard Bernstein, this is WOR Radio, your station for news. The world's largest outdoor saltwater pool is open daily at the Palisades Amusement Park, so come on over. There are one...